When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi there. My name is Samir, and this is Viewer Experience, the mobile syrup podcast where tech meets pop culture. Today's episode is on HBO's Westworld. Joining me on the show today is Mobile Syrup Telecom and business editor, Rose Bahar. How does it feel to be back on the show, Rose? It feels really good. Thank you for asking me to come on again. Thank you for joining us again. Later on the show, we'll hear from Dr. Fakhri Kare, co-director of the University of Waterloo Artificial Intelligence Institute and University Research Chair Professor at Waterloo's Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering, as well as Raphael Van Lierop, founder and creative director at British Columbia-based video game studio Hinterland Games, as well as the creative director on the studio's The Long Dark property. Dr. Kare will help inform a discussion on artificial intelligence, as well as speak a little bit about AI research taking place in Canada, while Raphael will lend some insight into what it's like building an open-world video game. But first, Rose and I are going to speak a little bit about Westworld in a segment I like to call Viewer Experience Goes West World. Here are some credits. Westworld was created by Jonathan Nolan and Lisa Joy. Owing to the fact that it's a television program, Westworld features a rotating cast of writers, directors, editors, and cinematographers, including names like Richard J. Lewis, Daniel T. Thompson, Hallie Gross, Charles Yu, Stephen Williams, Michelle McLaren, Stephen Semmel, Mark Yoshikawa, and Anne Hogger. The series is also scored by Ramin Jawadi. You may have heard his work on properties like Game of Thrones and the first Iron Man movie. In terms of acting talent, Westworld features Evan Rachel Wood, Tandy Newton, Jeffrey Wright, James Marsden, Luke Hemsworth, Rodrigo Santoro, and of course, Ed Harris, Tallulah Riley, and even Sir Anthony Hopkins. Westworld tells the story of a Western-themed amusement park, dubbed Westworld, that caters to the whims and wishes of those willing to pay to play with incredibly realistic androids called hosts. The show explores the nature of humanity while delving into topics like AI, morality, robot ethics, synthetic rights, and the importance of subdued, simple, linear storytelling. That last one was a joke, and you're going to find out why very soon. Before we continue, I'm once again issuing a viewer experience spoiler warning. We'll be discussing elements from the show's first season all the way up to season two, episode five, Akane no Mai. This is your final warning. Nicole Kidman is a ghost, Rosebud is a sled, and Snape kills Dumbledore. All right, now that that's out of the way, let's get into the swing of things. Rose, you've been on the show before, so I'm not going to ask if you've seen Westworld. Of course, I know that you have and you've been keeping up. Instead, I'm going to start off by asking what might actually seem to be a rather complicated question. Do you like Westworld? I do like Westworld. Uh, Obviously, the content is disturbing, but it's one of the most thought-provoking shows that is currently airing on TV, to my mind. And it's one of those things where, you know, TV and movies often investigate what scares us most. And I think AI is in the zeitgeist right now as one of the things that is the scariest. So it's a really interesting way to investigate that fear. 
you bring up this idea of fear of AI, but of course the Westworld theme park that we see in the show is a place where humans and these hosts get along. You know, they they engage in various forms of dialogue, winky face. They go around uh, on quests together. They seem to form what you know we might call a rather mutual bond. So what what's so scary about the AI in Westworld? Westworld is kind of like a modern take on the Frankenstein story, the modern Prometheus, but. What makes it scarier and what makes it sort of a twist is that in this reality, we've created a version of humans, but they're not ugly as the monster is supposed to be in Frankenstein, and they're not angry to begin with either. They're really perfect, but that doesn't stop us from mistreating them. So the horror is in what we do to them and how we can't really stop ourselves from inevitably coming into this sort of robot overthrow uh, situation. So I think that's really good horror shows us the scary side of what we're capable of doing rather than scary things that might happen to us. So that's why it gets a little scary. Part of the problem is that the uh, the guests at Westworld, you know, they come in, they come in on this train, they're in Sweetwater, the, the sort of default town uh, in, in the overall narrative. They're overwhelmed by how lifelike and realistic the, the hosts are. No one can tell the difference between a host and a guest. And one of the easiest ways to distinguish between a host and a guest uh, is really just a matter of firing a gun. If you If you shoot a host they will die. And if you shoot a human at point blank range, you know, it might pierce skin. But from a distance, the bullet is pre-coded to not harm humans. So what we'll often see is a guest shoot a host for no reason whatsoever, other than to just shoot that host. And it's weird, right? Because I I agree with you, it is a scary place. Because Westworld in universe, and if you follow the viral marketing content that HBO has put out, is marketed as this sort of utopia where you can be whomever you want to be and you can do whatever you want to do. But ultimately, it comes down to a matter of it being like the sandbox style video game where if you want to just kill everyone, you can. And there's really no repercussions for you. That's weird. That's, that's, that's weird and a little scary. And that comes back to reality. We're already concerned about how we act around voice assistants, for instance. I mean, Google came out with something that the pretty please feature so that kids would have to be polite to uh, the voice assistants. And that might seem like a small thing. But that's sort of the entry into what we're concerned about is how will we treat machines that we don't believe are sentient, don't believe feel when the line blurs between sentience and non-sentient beings? You know, how is that going to play out? I do want to jump off of that point you made about sentience versus non-sentience, because there are arguments on both sides for the hosts in Westworld. Are they genuinely thinking, feeling beings, or are they just programmed to feel that way? And this is going to be, you know, spoiler alert territory right now. Season one sort of ends with Dolores, uh, the host played by Evan Rachel Wood, who in-game, in-universe, Dolores is sort of like this sort of sweet farmer's daughter character who is a prize. And I don't mean that in a figurative sense. I mean, like, literally, the end of that quest ends with you potentially getting to sleep with Dolores. That's how, you know, you go and help her father, you save her family from bandits or whatever, and, oh, look at that, now now Dolores is your literal prize. And so, again, getting back to the end of season one, it ends with her 
shooting uh, Sir Anthony Hopkins' character in the head, like just in the back of the head. She straight up just ices Sir Anthony Hopkins. It's it's a remarkable scene. And out of context, it seems a little weird, but in context, it's it's what the show's sort of been building up towards for the for the first season arc. It ends with the show making this grand proclamation that actually, yes, the hosts can think for themselves, they can feel for themselves, and Dolores herself is one of those very sentient characters. Now, the reason I'm bringing all of this up is because the second season, of course, deals with the subject that Rose brought up earlier, which was the robots overthrowing their masters. And one of the things that I've been struggling with in season two is caring about certain hosts. Because there are, let's say, a thousand hosts in Westworld. I think there's, in my mind, there's only maybe ten that really know that they're real. Dolores is one of them, um, of course. And we know that Dolores is one of them because she's the instigator. She's the leader. But then you've got uh, Tandy Newton's character, Maeve, who is the madam, uh, winky face madam at a brothel. Uh, in Sweetwater, she goes on this quest to find her daughter. But of course, her daughter isn't really her daughter because they're hosts, they're robots. So what she's really looking for is a character, a robot who is a memory pre-programmed with the knowledge of being her daughter, but ultimately none of it's real. So my thing is, why should we care about these robots? And I'm sorry for that lengthy a bit of exposition. Rose, what do you think about that subject? Do you care about the hosts and their struggles? It's really interesting because you could ask the same question about any real human. Well, why should I care? Nothing really matters. There's no, you know, sure, you know, you might have given birth to a child, for instance, but the way that the rate why reason that we're so invested in that is all social construct. It's not there's no real difference between I gave birth to this girl and I was programmed to love her. In a sense, what what is the major difference there? Why should we denigrate being programmed to have a mother's love, which is clearly just as passionate as a real mother's love. Why should we say that it isn't as strong and isn't as worthy of caring about? But it is something that I've also wondered as well, like, well, it's not her real daughter, you know. But I think ultimately the show does go through quite a few lengths to show, well, it doesn't matter. She's still just as passionate. See, it's interesting because you've kind of taken this conversation in a direction that I wasn't expecting, which is sort of what happens with Westworld. I was asking that question to sort of segue into another conversation about the way that Westworld is a meta-commentary on storytelling. But again, Rose, you just brought up a perfectly not only rational, but reasonable and true point. Why do I care about the lives of the people I see on the street? Okay, of course, there are reasons why I care about the lives of the people on the street. I'm not a completely... I'm not, I'm not without compassion and I'm not without empathy. But yes, I mean, you know, the, the, the people on my go train, the people uh, on the streetcars that I take to and from work, they're really, they could be hosts for all I know. I don't talk to them. So I don't even sometimes make eye contact with them. I suppose then you're arguing that we should care about these quote-unquote, not real characters, who I should also mention aren't real because Westworld isn't real and it's a complete, it's all a fabrication. It's all fake, folks. TV is fake. Um, we should care about them uh, in the same way that we care about the living characters because just because it's a program, that doesn't mean that they don't demonstrate that ability to, to show compassion. If the depth of their feelings are the same, why should we feel any less empathetic towards one and not the other? I guess the follow-up question to that is, do you care about the human characters? So we know that uh, the man in black 
Ed Harris's character, um, who is the future version of Jimmy Simpson's character, because why would Westworld or any show really have a straightforward, simple, linear narrative? Um, so Ed Harris is a real man. Jimmy Simpson is the younger version of Ed Harris's character. But Ed Harris, of course, is this cruel, brutal man in black who just goes around killing all these hosts because he's on a one-man mission to discover what the park is all about. So that's an example of one of the human characters. Do you care about the humans in Westworld? I care about the humans in the way that I can relate to their poor decision-making and their flaws and their tendency to do evil. You know, like, I think any human can relate to those failings. And so it's quite poignant to see a show that shows us the worst case scenario. This is you on steroids and this is what you're capable of doing. I don't think that there are many quote unquote good human characters in Westworld. So you do tend to feel more for the androids in a sense. But I do think that uh, the humans are sort of our, the viewer's way of looking at the show. This is us. This is what we're capable of doing. So I do care for them but in a way of sort of like oh my gosh is this is this really what the future is going to be like it's funny that you bring up that uh, that idea of westworld shining a mirror on on us the viewers and asking us to look at who we are because westworld within the universe of the tv show is one of six theme parks and as of akane no mai season two episode five we know that there are definitely three because we've seen three on the show and uh, Jonathan Nolan and Lisa Joy have hinted at two more, but there are, there is definitely six parks in total. So there's Westworld, which is, of course, the American frontier, Midwest, this take on the cowboys and Native Americans, indigenous Americans narrative. There's Raj World, which is colonialist, imperialist India. And then there's Shogun World, which is Edo-era Japan. So this idea of Westworld shining a light on the audience is interesting because the worlds that we've seen so far, uh, and there's also Roman world and medieval world, which Lisa Joy and Jonathan Nolan have hinted at, but we haven't seen yet. So the worlds that we see are all sort of like the, the quote unquote white man's view of what things are good, except for Shogun world, which is not, I should mention. So Raj world you can be a British colonialist and you can have a bunch of Indian men and women servicing you uh, in your lovely uh, in your lovely compound. In Westworld, you can go around and uh, kill Native Americans if you'd like, uh, Indigenous Americans if you'd like, but also women don't really have a lot of freedom. The, the, the main women characters that we see, again, there's the farmer's daughter who you can bed, um, and then in Sweetwater, there is a brothel where you can also bed the women. And the show kind of does this thing in the brothel, in Maeve's brothel, where we see a real woman guest be seduced by one of the women hosts. So it's sort of like this thing where it's, it's like, oh, you can be your truest self, uh, your truest person. But again, the women are still objectified. Like, there's just no way of getting around that. And of course, Raj World, I, I'm amazed that HBO or anyone actually went like went with Raj World because it's, it's literally like just a bunch of British people sipping tea outside while a bunch of Indian men in turbans are serving them, like serving them food. And there's, there's, some, there's a band playing um, the Rolling Stones paint it black but on a sitar so it's interesting in that sense uh, that sort of what Westworld the TV show is saying to its viewers is that if you had the chance to be your truest self you'd be a colonizer I think that's absolutely like one of the things that they're trying to show is how much uh, you know colonizers love to con colonize and also drawing that that sort of uh, thread between colonial attitudes and the kind of like fascism that's holding these robots kind of hostage and also 
making them perform our every wish, which is interesting because I guess it's just sort of seen as another form of being able to enslave or indenture people to you. And of course, on that subject of slavery and indentured service, the hosts literally rise up against their captors. In season two, we see the hosts engaging in a series of narratives that are presumably not programmed, where they're trying to, again, overthrow their captors and take over the park. But that question of whether we care or not about them succeeding, for me personally, is kind of difficult, because in my mind, I think to myself, well, what ultimately, what is going to happen um, once they succeed? If, if the hosts are to kill off all of the uh, all of the guests if they're to take over the park what's going to happen is the united states going to recognize the six delos properties you know westworld medieval world shogun world so on and so forth as sovereign nations are they going to be states are they going to be like how's that what's the long term game here i mean it seems like there would be no winning because what if even if they took over the parks you could see a scenario where they were just sort of the parks were then just bombed or, you know, drone striked just to into obliteration. So because I'm, I'm sure, you know, like it just seems like an extremely dangerous uh, situation that the United States, even in the future, would not be tolerant of. So it really seems like there's no way of win- winning unless they sort of made it into the real world, sort of maybe secretively and kind of began to to get into real world situations and sort of just pretended that they were humans. It doesn't seem like there's any real good end game. On the subject of the real world end game, what I think is really interesting, uh, again, in universe, is that no one's talking about shutting down the park. Season two begins, and it seems like the main goal of the Delos Corporation, and the Delos Corporation is the is the global multinational that runs Westworld and the other five theme parks, their goal is just to shut down all of the hosts, reprogram them, and open up again, which... In my mind, as a person who's never started a business, as a person who's always looking at businesses from the outside, I would think that the last thing you'd want to do is to have these hosts kill a bunch of wealthy people. Because what the show repeatedly says is that it's like 35,000 US, 40,000 US per day in Westworld. So it's the cost of a car and maybe like a down payment on a, on a condo to spend one day in Westworld. And people spend a week. They spend two weeks. Like, it's, it's a vacation. So, you know, money is, money is just free-flowing there. Gotta love the 1%. So, for me, it's interesting that the Dallas Corporation would even want to reopen Westworld. Because that's, that's crazy. But of course, the Dallas Corporation isn't really using Westworld or any of these theme parks as a theme park. They're using it as a way to collect the private information of all of the guests and not the financial information or their Facebook passwords. No, their literal biological DNA. Because every single host that you touch, every single host that you sleep with keeps the information that you share with them. What I'm saying is that any biological information that is deposited into a host is the property of the Delos Corporation. That means your saliva, that means your skin cells, your hair cells, um, and other certain cells uh, that are released during certain human acts. Rose, what do you think about the idea that the Dallas Corporation is pretty much there to like steal our private information? Data privacy. It's it's one of the, you know, big buzz topics right now and it's one of the things that uh, we've we talk about a lot on on Syrupcast as well and it's just it's I think it makes a lot of sense the amount of information that you could get from people especially when they are being their truest selves. 
uh, would be extremely valuable. And and also to note that in this second season, there is also a bigger picture in the idea of being able to make a future view, version of you after you die as well. So that's sort of another thing, like a side hustle that they're working on. I guess let's get to that question about the meta commentary. What do you think Westworld is about? What does the show represent? I think it's kind of the Frankenstein's monster story. Um with a twist, holding a mirror up to society, as you said as well. But it does also pose the important question of what is sentience. And I think that's probably the most important aspect of Westworld is that we really have to start talking about that uh, question and coming to terms with it because in reality, AI is already advancing at such a rate that it's almost, it's difficult to believe what's happening. Like, uh, for instance, with Google Duplex, um, just seeing how realistic AI is capable of being and, and how far advanced the research is, uh, we, need to, we need to start talking about how to treat AIs with our, bringing our values in a, we need to start talking about how to treat AI and artificial intelligent beings in a way that reflects our values, not just because we think they may or may not have feelings, but also because we need to be cognizant of the type of world that we want to live in. And that actually segues perfectly into our next segment that I like to call, It's All Artificial Fun and Games Until Someone Gets Intelligent. Westworld as a show delves deep into the world of artificial intelligence, just like Rose pointed out, with the hosts quite literally created through the manipulation of biological and mechanical science. It goes without saying that we're leaps and bounds away from achieving anything like the AI we see in Westworld, but that's not to say that we're necessarily never going to get there. I spoke with Dr. Fakhi Karay, University Research Professor at the University of Waterloo and Research Chair in Artificial Intelligence. To learn a little bit more about artificial intelligence. And according to Dr. Karay... Artificial intelligence has been defined since the late 50s as, at that time, particular set of algorithms that try to mimic the human capabilities in terms of reasoning, in terms of decision-making type of process. But it has evolved over the years. And for many, many years, I mean, artificial intelligence has been a little bit put in a corner because of the difficulty of making use of it in day-to-day applications. However, in the past 10 years, actually, there has been huge resurgence, at least in two major areas of the field of artificial intelligence, namely machine learning and deep learning. There has been a lot of progress in the past several years. And what we hear mostly in the past several years when we speak of AI is mostly related to machine learning and deep learning. It's not all of it, but it's mostly related to those two because there has been a huge development in this field. So we can look at artificial intelligence is a set of algorithms that try to mimic the human capabilities in terms of taking decisions, in terms of recognizing patterns, in terms of classifying shapes and doing all sorts of things that a human are able to do with various types of senses, such as visual sensing, such as the hearing. So when we speak of computer vision, when we speak of speech recognition, these are type of capabilities that the human has almost perfected. And nowadays, machines using AI tools can do quite a bit of these type of capabilities. And they are progressing in that particular field. But not only in the sense of recognizing pattern or classifying artificial intelligence tools. When I speak now of artificial intelligence, I speak of machine learning, deep learning, all the tools of artificial intelligence 
including multi-agent system, expert system, game theory, all of those, we will put them under artificial intelligence. So when we speak of those ones, a lot of people are trying to utilize nowadays in real world type of application. And because of their versatility, artificial intelligence is now being used in major sectors, basically in the health sector, in the transportation sector, in the financial sector, in manufacturing sector. And a lot of strides have been made in all these type of sectors using uh, tools that have been developed only the past five to ten years. Now, Rose, you brought up the idea of things like Google Duplex, and we also spoke a little bit about our values and also things like other digital assistants. When you hear the word AI or the phrase AI, what do you normally think of? What is an artificial intelligence to you? An automated service or platform that mimics human cognitive abilities, often with a memory that surpasses our own. Well, according to Dr. Carre, there are four types of artificial intelligences. Type 1, type 2, and type 3 are very useful nowadays because they help us out in almost everyday life. So when you go to banking, when you apply for a loan, when you do, I mean, you request for certain type of information, all of these type of things could be facilitated to you by the fact that the system has learned and is going to provide you the information from that particular learning process. The banker or whoever, I mean the loan agent, could take some few information from you and in few seconds it tells you whether you are candidate for that loan or not or how much you need further. So these type of things are very, very helpful. Or even in the search technologies, when you go to Google, I mean these type of systems have a huge amount of data that they have grabbed in the past and any type of search that you are doing, I mean the system has seen something similar to it and it provides you very, very relevant answers to what you have requested. So this is very, very helpful to us as a human. Type 2 machine, AI type of machine system, can make their proper decision and they can execute appropriate actions. This is the part where we call it also edge AI, where we don't need to possess huge supercomputers or huge computing power or cloud system, but you have very powerful embedded processors that could have in them enough memory which you can embed into it experience that you have obtained from the past or training data that you have gathered from the past. And when you put it for the machine, the system is going to respond to you very adequately. Some of the best examples are the self-driving cars. Self-driving cars, they don't need to have cloud computing to do obstacle avoidance or to navigate into the lane of a highway. The chatbot system as well. They are systems that require AI tools and they do not require cloud computing, although many of them do so. Personal digital assistants are also among the type 2 AI machine intelligence systems. So these similar to the Alexa system or the Cortana or the Siri type of model. The third type is the systems that are able to understand the thoughts, emotion, recognize gestures and provide certain type of information to you. These type of systems are implemented in what we call social robot system. These are machines that have been designed over the past few years and they can recognize people in the room, people in the kitchen. They can interact with them. They can recognize when they are upset. They can recognize where they are frustrated and they can help them out with a number of tasks. And of course... Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. 
Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The type 4 system is, we haven't reached it yet, but partially, actually, we have reached it partially. So they are basically systems that are super intelligent. They are systems that have cognitive capabilities that are almost similar to human and systems that have almost a conscience. And this type of system, I mean, similar to the Westworld type of movies or the science fiction type of systems. So that's the four types. So as you can see, three of them are, we have reached a lot of capabilities to accomplish them. The fourth one, we still long road ahead to accomplish it, which is the type four system. What's important to understand is that modern AI is very much tied to these concepts of machine learning and deep learning, as well as concepts like natural language processing, which is pretty much just being able to take a conversation like the one that Rose and I are having and understand it, decode it, break it down, and not have to worry about us messing up syntax or grammar. And here's what Dr. Correa has to say about machine learning and deep learning. Machine learning is an umbrella of algorithms, and deep learning is components of this umbrella and it has seen a lot of resurgence in the past few years because of major development. So what machine learning does is given a certain amount of data that you have gathered, the machine learning system is able to capture knowledge out of that particular data. So either to create models to predict future action in them or to classify basically a particular type of shape or a particular type of pattern, whether it belongs to a category or not. This is what machine learning does. So it's a set of algorithms that crunch huge amount of data that have been prepared by the user and provide to you at the end of the day a decision-making signal that will help you to predict a certain type of occurrence or to classify a certain type of shape. And the shape could be an image, it could be a video clip, or it could be a sound, shape recognition, pattern recognition, or speech recognition. So that's what machine learning. I mean, in its simplest case, it's an algorithm that makes use of data and structured set of algorithms to learn from that data and to try to help you to create models out of those data in such a way as when in the future you try to utilize that particular model, the system should provide you with an output that is very, very close to the reality. Canada also happens to be one of the leaders in artificial intelligence research and development around the world. Yes, Canada has made a lot of strides over the past several years, and we have major research centers around Canada that are doing artificial intelligence, and they are exporting knowledge to the rest of the world. Canada has especially been leading in the field of machine learning, deep learning, and we have various type of centers in Montreal, in Toronto, in Alberta, in Waterloo, in British Columbia, in several parts of Canada, and a lot of high-tech enough companies have come out of these research centers and they are contributing to the well-being of the world in the field of artificial intelligence. So we are quite advanced in Canada in the field of artificial intelligence, but we should not forget that there are other countries that have become also leaders in this particular field. And of course, we can mention the US and we can mention China, which is making a huge strides in the field of artificial intelligence. And they are spending tens of billions of dollars on a yearly basis on research centers to promote education in artificial intelligence to various layers of the population and to develop state-of-the-art technology to support some of its companies. And of course, Europe has had a lot of work in the field of artificial intelligence. Japan is, is one of the countries that, that has some leadership as well in a particular area of, of the field. But go, going back to Canada, I mean, we have three major aspects or two big aspects, we can call it. 
the foundational aspects of AI, where you have machine learning, statistical learning, and Canada is one of the world leaders in this field. There is also what is known as operational AI, where you implement AI technologies to embedded systems, to small computers or to small devices to make them intelligent, to make them sense intelligently their surroundings and provide certain type of action. And uh, this is also Canada has made big strides and we consider as well ourselves among the leaders in this particular field. When you hear about some of the research that's taking place in Canada and around the world, what worries you? All those type of issues that scientists are battling uh, with are these type of algorithms, as we have designed them to be utilized for good usage, such as self-driving cars, personal digital assistants, they can also be utilized or misused. So they can be utilized for hacking. They can be utilized for stealing money from the bank account online. So people have utilized tools of artificial intelligence to do these type of things. So there is a little bit of ethical and moral issues for implementing AI nowadays. And the fear of misuse is real. And scientists are trying to come uh, with certain type of capabilities for this type of devices or this type of software to prevent the bad use of this type of systems. How to do that? People are thinking about a number of possibilities. Also, people are fearing that the design of this particular system could be, I mean, uh, again, for the misuse design, what uh, what is known are, as killer robots. Killer robots, I mean, they they are robots. I mean, they could be in your house or my house or in a manufacturing cell. And immediately these robots, if they are hacked, they could become a killer robot because, I mean, robots work with a certain type of software. So there is quite a bit of fear of misuse. There are a number of ethical uh, and legal issues that needs to be resolved in the field of AI. So now people in the field of AI are talking with people in the ethical thing, and they are trying to sort out some of these uh, type of uh, these type of issues. Lest we create a monster, of course, just like in Westworld, that decides it no longer wants to keep on dying for the pleasure of these one percenters who show up just spending exorbitant amounts of in-world currency and real-life currency on hurting what should be treated as living sentient beings. That subject of building and creation leads us to our final segment of the day that I like to call Hinterland Who's Who? Raphael von Lierop, That's Who. Now, Westworld is like a video game, and I wanted to speak to someone with experience building video games to learn a little bit more about what the process is like creating lengthy, open narratives that still conform to a kind of structure. Listen on for my interview with Raphael van Lierop. Founder and creative director on The Long Dark. I was wondering if you could begin by maybe sharing some of your thoughts about Westworld. What are some similarities or differences between Westworld and game development? It's interesting to watch Westworld as a game developer because there's a lot of language that they use that you know overlaps with things that we discuss regularly, like game loops, obviously the idea of narrative threads and whatnot. You know, I think it's interesting when you look at the structure of Westworld itself and sort of who the key characters are, they they elevate the role of kind of quality assurance to a place that I think is much higher than how it typically is viewed in the industry. And I'm not saying that it shouldn't be viewed this way in the industry, but it's just interesting to me that, you know, they put the, the person who's responsible for quality assurance at the same level as pretty much all the other executives that are running the theme park. And, you know, I think it's it's probably because to some degree, if there are quality issues in Westworld, you know, people can get hurt and there's this whole other aspect to it that we don't necessarily have to worry about in the game. But 
you know, I think they did their research. Certainly it's, it's not, it doesn't feel like one of those uh, movies or TV shows that tries to portray video game development and really gets it wrong. I think as a game developer, you can look at Westworld and you can see a lot of our craft in there and, you know, whether it's the roles themselves or just the language that they use to talk about these ideas. I think it's actually quite heartening to see the character of Robert Ford, who's, you know, a fairly elderly gentleman by the time, you know, the first season takes place, who's still like in that creative director role at the theme park, even though he's been doing it for 30 or 40 years. And that's interesting because you don't see that a lot in our industry yet, but it's, we're, you know, we're still fairly young. And I think we're just getting to kind of our first generation of creative directors and founders who are, you know, in their 50s and they're, you know, some of them are getting to their 60s. So that's kind of interesting. As someone in his early 40s, I think about that a lot right now. <laughs> What's going to happen in the next, you know, 10, 15, 20 years? I think they've done a good job in portraying game development. There's little details here and there where things don't necessarily ring true, but then I think in Often the ways in which they don't ring true to the way the industry currently works, they could also be aspirational for us in, in a way. So I really actually enjoy it a lot from the standpoint of thinking about it as, as a game development exercise. Um, even though it is sort of portrayed more as a theme park, it does feel to me like this vast kind of open world simulation. And, you know, I've, I actually end up thinking a lot about it um, in the context of, what, of, of how we deliver experiences in the long dark and how our players kind of engage with that and how they talk about it with each other. Could you describe the long dark's gameplay aspects? We have kind of two main experiences in the long dark. One is the survival mode, which is a non-narrative experience. So it's essentially an open world permadeath survival game where this the narrative of that experience is really a hundred percent about the player's choices and just the minute-to-minute gameplay right and and they essentially kind of contextualize their experience of the mechanics as a as a story of their own right some players do some players don't some players just really engage with it purely as a as a mechanics driven experience and some players will you know go really they'll take it really far they'll write these sort of long journal entries and they'll sort of narrate their own experiences as they're trying to stay alive in the long dark and there's no way to win that game it's essentially you're just trying to survive for as many days as you can but ultimately you're going to die that's the first sort of experience and that's kind of what the game is known for the second experience is the is the story mode which is episodic and it, it does follow something of a like television kind of structure in terms of the storytelling but it's not as open. Well, this makes it even more complicated. We launched the first two episodes last fall. And in that version of the first two episodes, the narrative was fairly linear in the sense that you, you know, even though it's an open world game, you still had kind of a primary story thread that you had to play through in a certain order. And the missions, you know, like there were prerequisites. So you couldn't move on to the second part of that story until you'd finished the first part, for example. In the work that we've been doing on our, what we call internally the redux or the redo of those two episodes, we've opened up the mission structure so that actually things can happen sort of more out of order. I don't think the long dark is necessarily as open as, like narratively speaking, it's not as open as, let's say, a vast open world RPG like a Skyrim or a Grand Theft Auto or a Red Dead or something like that because we just don't have the scope. One of the questions I've always wanted to ask is how developers go about maintaining narrative momentum in a property that's relatively open-ended, like The Long Dark. How do you keep players interested and invested? So just to clarify for for the listeners, our survival mode is an open-world permadeath survival experience. So what that means is 
the permadeath part is what's ex important there. And what it means is when you die in the game, we basically delete your character, we delete your saves. So death is permanent, permadeath, which is different from how we handle the saves in the story mode, where if you have a failure of any kind, you can kind of reload from a previous checkpoint or from a previous save and continue. And that's important because in a narrative-driven experience, you don't want to have permadeath because it, what it does is it forces players to kind of continuously go back through and play experiences that they've already had which does ruin that sense of narrative momentum. A big part of what makes the narrative interesting is that it, you know, when it's the first time you've experienced it, you want to know what comes next. You want to see how things unfold and how they get resolved. So if you're forced to kind of continuously replay sections that are story-driven, kind of like a Groundhog Day experience, it really loses its momentum and, and interest for the players. So it kind of fails in that sense. In our survival mode experience, it is very much that kind of almost Groundhog Day thing where you know, because the game is very challenging, we'll have players who come in and they may struggle to survive for a day or two and they'll die and they'll kind of come back and try again and come back and try again. And it's kind of that struggle against hope in a way that is compelling about the experience. There isn't a formalized narrative per se in survival mode. It's really more about what the players bring to that experience. So we have players who come in and they really engage primarily with the mechanics level of the game. So they care more about managing their resources and how are they gonna make sure they don't starve and freeze to death. And you know they're min-maxing everything they can in terms of inventory or resources, you know, just to try to last as long as they can, survive as many days as they can. And then we have on the other end of the spectrum characters who bring or players who bring a lot of themselves to the experience and, and create a lot of their own narrative, whether it's formalized in the form, you know, in diary entries, for example. So we have an in-game diary and players can kind of write stories about their experience. We have players that go into our community forums afterwards and share these extensive narrations of their survival games that they've come up with. They might come up with actual characters that don't necessarily exist in the game itself, but that they've kind of created themselves in their own heads. In their own minds so in that regard i think survival mode really satisfies uh, like a really broad spectrum of player types and and people who are looking for very different experiences some who don't necessarily put a lot of emphasis on traditional narrative who are really more um, you know more interested in their own moment-to-moment sort of -moment experience of surviving in this kind of vast frigid canadian wilderness and then you have people on the other side who are clearly looking, you know, to add meaning to their experience and are looking maybe more for that philosophical aspect. And their way of, of representing that is to, you know, create an actual narrative around these mechanics. And that's that's interesting to look at, you know, the survival mode experience from that point of view, because it can be sort of so many things to so many people, even though the, the game is the same for everyone, or the mechanics are essentially the same. When you go into the story mode, which we call Winter Mute, it's an episodic story sort of structured similarly to a TV series. And there we have a have a sort of a fixed authored narrative. So we have characters specific characters who you play. There's a specific plot that's kind of playing out across the episodes. There's an overall mythology for what's happening in the world of the long dark. And so we're kind of revealing that with, with the episodes as they progress. In that case, the mechanics of the game that are really what are showcased in the survival mode side of the experience, they're obviously still important to Wintermute because they're really the foundation of how the game works. But we, we then add a layer of more traditional authored narrative on top of it. So we, we emphasize more the history of the world and some of the background of the people who might have been there. And there's sort of notes and things left behind that you can read to discover, you know, stories about people who are no longer there. Or maybe the history of what happened on the island before this event that kind of brought your plane crashing down. And sort of we're building up the richness of the narrative and the fiction of the world that way. So 
essentially we're trying to appeal to you know many different types of players where we have that like maybe Westworld-esque foundation of a theme park, even though ours is very different. But then we're adding those narratives as well that you also see in Westworld where they're very specific sort of plot lines that are introduced, you know, with specific locations, maybe, you know, we're, we're often just like they do in the show. We're creating environments that are specific for those stories. We're creating characters that are specific for those stories. Um, so there's it's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that's analogous between you know what you see in Westworld and what, and, and how we actually make uh, the game make the long dark and 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 you know this is this is stuff that's pretty standard for open world games but it's yeah it's interesting just to tie those two things back together I think how similar those approaches are. Do you ever struggle to make sure that players experience the narrative in the quote unquote correct way? I mean, I think the, the the difference in our approach, and and this is the difference between how a game works and how a, a linear uh, experience like a like a TV series or a film works, is that we aren't necessarily trying to control that. We're we're presenting options to the player, so we're giving them an authored narrative thread that hopefully they care enough about that they want to continue through. We're also providing them with lots of secondary narrative content that they can kind of opt into if they wish to. We're trying to provide as open an experience as we possibly can so that players don't feel kind of shoehorned into a narrative so they can approach it from a bunch of different directions, which means we often have to create lots of conditional content that not every player is going to experience. And that's just that's just the nature of the medium. That's what makes it strong. That's what makes it work is that we we do as much as we can to support, you know, a, a variety of different approaches and, and, and really try to empower the player as much as possible to experience the game at their own pace, even though we... We also try to, you know, for the, for example, with the Long Dark specifically, and you see this in a lot of open world games, you know, you'll be dropped into a world and, and you're given this really urgent goal to find someone to accomplish something. And, but it might be tens of hours before you actually like end up really engaging in that, in that story because there's so much other stuff to do that you can kind of get distracted. Or maybe you're one of those players who at the moment you don't really care about following the main story. You just kind of want to go and do other things in the world. And this is very common for open world games. It's, you know, Fallout, the Fallout games, Skyrim, all the Grand Theft Auto games, Red Dead Redemption, like everything that's done, you know, all these open world games tend to have the same kind of issue. And in the long dark, we also have it. So we drop the player, you know, in a plane crash, you have someone with you who's gone missing. So you initially have this really strong impetus to try to find this person. But along the way, you encounter other characters. We start to reveal more information about the world. You have your own kind of minute to minute survival needs to take care of. And those things can sometimes kind of get in the way of accomplishing your objective. And what we try to do is make sure that if we assume a player is going to just basically focus on the main story, that we pace it out as well as we can, even acknowledging that they have so much freedom to kind of go off the beaten path and do what they like. We try to set clear enough sort of posts for them to move through the story and through the world and, and kind of work their way through these different narrative beats so that they maintain enough interest in what's going on and that kind of motivates them forward. You know, we might have to remind players at times who get off the off track and kind of want to experience other things. And we'll use journal updates and we'll use the mission systems to kind of ping players and let them know, hey, don't forget there's this content over here. But we also try to not get in their face too much because, again, a lot of what makes a game like The Long Dark work is that it can be a lot of things to a lot of people. So some people play through, you know, the first two episodes of our Wintermute experience in, you know, 15 hours, some or 20 hours. Some players might take 50 hours to play through it. The game has to work for, for both those kinds of players. And so, you know, we sacrifice a little bit of that really tight narrative momentum that you can get that you can accomplish in a in a more linear game or a linear medium like film or TV. 
but we we gain the openness and the flexibility and and I think that's what you know that's what you sign on for when you make an open world game. In your opinion, which is better, open-ended storytelling or linear narratives? You'll have to qualify what you mean by better. <laughs> because I don't think there I don't think either is better, I think or or either is worse. I think it depends on what your objectives are. If you're if the focus of your game and the experience that you're making is to be this tightly plotted narrative experience where you want to control everything that's happening. So it's a lot more like a film, you know, and, and, and you know, some games that come to mind would be, you know, the games like that Naughty Dog does, like the Uncharted games or Last of Us or whatever, where they are essentially very linear experiences. They're very particularly authored experiences and they're really able to control a lot of the things that the player is seeing and experiencing at any given point to create this really specific experience that they control just like you would in a film and that works really well if that's the kind of game that you're trying to make if that's the kind of experience that you're trying to make and i think when players play a naughty dog game they know that's what they're getting and they know that's what they want versus a game that is intending to be more open, more, you know, to support more different, you know, different kinds of approaches and wants players to, you know, for example, you know, we have players who played The Long Dark for 1,000 hours or more, 1,500 hours, 2,000 hours. Like, that's, that was part of the goal, you know, behind the game was to create an experience that people could really engage with, that they would play over and over, that they would immerse themselves in the world, that they would get really attached to the game, not just to a specific playthrough of the game, but to the world of the game and the experience of the game, because, you know, the more hours they put in, the more kind of connected they are to that. Um, so for us at work, you know, what's better in that sense is an open world experience. And there's a way that you have to craft narrative to work within that kind of openness. So the answer of better is hard to, it's hard to qualify because it depends exactly on what you're trying to do. I, I would say if you want to tell or present a more kind of let's say quote-unquote cinematic experience meaning something that's closer to a film then you want it to be more more linear more authored more controlled and if you're trying to represent an experience that is i think more um what games can do that films can't do then i would say the open world approach is probably the better in quotes way to go and you know not to not to go too much back to the Westworld experience, but I think if you look at Westworld also, it's it's kind of, it is more that that open, that their narrative structure is an open structure because the intention of Westworld is to be, is to offer a breadth of experiences to a lot of different people at, at the same time, right? So not only is it an open world game, but it's also a massively multiplayer open world game, which is completely different from what we do, right? So um, yeah, I would say whatever, it, it, you know, it, the, the better approach, the, the best approach depends on, you know, what you're trying to accomplish, what kind of experience you want your players to have. Um, and, and I'd say it's easy to find examples of really compelling narrative um, experiences that were very linear and, and tightly controlled. And there are also some very compelling uh, narrative experiences that are, that are more open. And I think what's, what's different about a, a game than what you can experience in a film or in a television series is is kind of what I was talking about before when I was describing the narrative experience of our survival mode, our sandbox game, which is not a traditional narrative. It's not what you would consider narrative if you're talking about a film or a TV series. It's more of the minute-to-minute -minute experience of what the player does and how they choose to find their way through the world and the things that they do along the way and how they create a narrative of their play you know, as they go through the game, this narrative that they're creating in their own heads about their experience. And I think that's something that is um, unique to games. 
What is it about open world games or survival games that seems to draw in so many players? To your question specifically, I think it has less to do with the fact that they're survival games and more to do with the fact that they're open world games. Um, I think people are looking for, you know, when they when they choose to play an open world game, they're looking for freedom. They want to be in a large world. They want to feel like they're in a dynamic environment that's changing based on their decisions, how they approach problems. Um, there's a, there's systems sort of driving, you know, what's happening behind the scenes, and they're learning how to manipulate the systems to their own advantage. They sometimes are pushing against the boundaries of what the game world is presenting to them, which is part of the fun, part of what's compelling for them. Um, and they want to um, immerse themselves in a world that they hopefully will stay along, stay in for a long time. So I think there's a there's a level of engagement there that does, um, you know, is measured in, in in play hours to some degree, versus a very linear scripted narrative experience, which by nature is going to be shorter. It's going to be less replayable because once you've gone through the story and it doesn't ever change, why would you necessarily want to go through it again? You know, unless you loved it or some time has passed and you just want to refresh your memory, you know, there's not really any reason to play through a game like that more than once because you've kind of already, you already know what's going to happen. And if the narrative is one of the main reasons why you're experiencing it, once you know the story, you're not likely to want to go back to it again. Or you'll, or you, at least you won't be able to do it fresh, and so it, the impact won't be the same. Um, with an open world experience, it's it's um, it's really more about the exploration and the freedom, and I think that's part of the reason why something like for us, the survival mode works really well because even though the world itself doesn't change, so it's not procedural, it's a handcrafted world. Um, players, the more time they spend in the world, the more familiar they are with it, the more successful they can be as survive, you know, in surviving because they learn to read landmarks in the world and they learn to know roughly where certain resource might, resources might be and they learn to read weather patterns and understand how wildlife behaves and over time, the more, the more they've invested in understanding the game systems, the more successful they can be in, in, you know, in their survival. And I think that's, it's just a different kind of compulsion loop than what you get from, from a more narrative experience. Thank you for your time. Awesome. Well, thanks for the time. And I hope that was useful. And I hope that your, your listeners find it interesting. And that's it for this week's episode of Viewer Experience. Before we go, we'd like to remind you that Mobile Syrup's flagship podcast, The Syrupcast, is available on iTunes, Google Play Music, and pretty much every podcasting app out there. Rose, where can our listeners find you? They can find me at Rose Bahar, B-E-H-A-R, on Twitter. And of course, we can find you on MobileSyrup.com. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> you can find me at Samir Chabra 94 on Twitter. And of course, you can find me on MobileSyrup.com as well. You can find Mobile Syrup at Mobile Syrup on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for tuning in. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.